Is a free and open society more susceptible to the dangers of envy? It's an interesting question to me because most often the envy charge is used against socialism, right? Or some kind of outcome egalitarian form of society. The argument there sometimes goes like this, you know, socialism is just based on envy, right? Uh, socialism is motivated by this anti-rich sentiment, anti-success, envious feelings uh, by those people who are less successful, less wealthy, and so forth. And that's really just an illegitimate motivation. So we can just dismiss socialism on, on moral grounds. Or sometimes, though, the envy charge against socialism is that it institutionalizes envy. You know, under socialism, we're all supposed to be equal in outcomes, say. But to keep everyone roughly equal requires a lot of monitoring about who has what and how things are distributed. And that leads to everyone in society, not just the government, snooping and scrutinizing everyone else constantly. Right? Does his apartment have more windows? Did she get a new dress? Where did the money for that come from? Right? Or on a smaller scale, we can imagine this. You know, If you come from a large enough family, got a bunch of kids sitting around the dinner table, and mom says she's going to give everyone an equally sized slice of cake. Well, you know, just imagine how hyper scrutinous, right, all of the kids come when they're looking very carefully at every cut of the cake that the mom makes and all of the complaints and the bad feelings if someone slices slightly smaller or, or slightly, slightly bigger. So that's an institutionalization, right, of envy if you have some sort of socialist distribution going on and everyone is supposed to be, to be equal. Now, I think the envy charge does work against some motivations for socialism, as, you know, envy can for sure be one crude route to socialism. A lot of times people who feel envious, they want to bring their betters down, and one way to do that is by grabbing their stuff, and socialism can rationalize that redistribution. But socialism is not only motivated by envy. There are several routes to socialism, so one cannot simply dismiss all of socialists as envy-based. Also, there are, and this is the more interesting topic for today, there are more sophisticated forms of socialism or more broadly anti-liberal social thinking that will argue that the phenomenon of envy actually counts more against liberal capitalism. The charge here is that envy is going to be worse in a free society because a free society leads to greater inequalities. And envy, from this perspective, is a natural response to great inequalities. Envy, we also know, leads to social conflict. It's an antisocial force. And the issue here isn't necessarily whether envy is justified or proper. The fact just is that it happens, and it happens in very destructive forms. So what should we psychologically informed social thinkers do about that? And then we might say, as part of our political theory, well, purpose of government is to keep the peace, and if lessening inequality is going to lessen social conflict, so be it. Or we might, in just more democratic forms, say, you know, the purpose of government is to give people what they want, and what they want is a sense that things are more fair. Now, whether the people, broadly speaking, have a sense of fairness that is perfectly correct, that doesn't really matter. Government should just be responsive to whatever the people actually believe and want. So this line of argument concludes, some kind of egalitarian or semi-egalitarian socialism is going to be the solution against the great inequalities that might lead to envy and thereby lead to social conflict. Now, there's some big name sources historically and more recently who are behind this. A lot of names can be named here, but 
would mention uh, standout Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, his discourse on the origin of inequality, one of the things he points out there, particularly in the more modern kinds of societies, more complicated societies that were developing in the early modern world, that there are great inequalities of earnings, great inequality of assets. Some people are a lot more beautiful. Some people are physically stronger. Some people are better dancers. Some are more charming. And Rousseau points out, or he believes, that human beings are a lot more passional than they are rational. Uh, they react emotionally uh, a lot more than they do giving nuanced judgments about circumstances. And so they react in very strongly negative emotional ways to all of these differences in beauty, physical strength, dancing partners, charm, and so forth. So there's all of these comparisons that are going on, and they are going to generate, and they do generate, a lot of bad feelings. As a result of that, there's a lot more social conflict. And so Rousseau argues we should become more egalitarian to alleviate all of the envy that these more modern forms of society are generating. Also, Rousseau notes rise in competitiveness and the, the rise of a society in which competition, economic competition and so forth is valorized. But competition, Rousseau points out, teaches people to compare themselves to each other, and that's going to lead, lead to a lot of bad feelings as well. So this highly unequal, highly competitive society, he thinks, needs to be overturned. And we're not going to go back to primitive savagery, but he thinks we could go back to some sort of tribal state where people are a lot more equal. So the number of zones for uh, comparisons and the, the, the range of inequalities is going to be a lot less. Now that's the uh, middle part of the uh, 1700s. If we jump to the middle part of the 20th century, 1971, John Rawls in his best-selling and very influential A Theory of Justice, in a more moderate form, makes a similar argument, though, that we need to take cognizance of envy. One of the things Rawls argues is that we need to have a well-ordered society. That's a legitimate function of government. And that uh, requires attending to principles of justice. But a well-ordered society uh, is also going to include a strong measure of social stability. But Rawls points out that too much envy, just as Jean-Jacques Rousseau pointed out, too much envy leads to instability. And that counts against the legitimate function of a government to create a well-ordered society. So even though Rawls recognizes that envy is not a moral emotion, he calls it a vice at one point. We should have to arrange society in a way that will not, quote, arouse envy to a socially dangerous extent, unquote. That's on page 466. That is to say that Rawls is arguing that in crafting our principles of justice, we do need to appease envy to some degree. Join Professor Stephen Hicks on his Adventures in Postmodernism tour next March in Australia where he'll be giving you his insights and lessons on the subject firsthand. Find out what makes postmodernism attractive. Why is it so dangerous? How has it evolved or mutated over the years? Does postmodernism have strong connections to neo-Marxism? What is the role of it in cultural wars, campus battles over free speech, political correctness, intellectual diversity, identity politics, and the rise of Antifa and alternative right? What other political movements are now adopting postmodernism strategies, and how do we resolve these issues of postmodernism? Stephen Hicks will be appearing in four major Australian cities throughout March 2019. He'll be doing an evening talk in Melbourne, Sydney, 
Adelaide and Brisbane starting at 7pm and will be holding an all-day special event masterclass series starting at 9am on March 10th in Melbourne and March 16th in Sydney where he will delve even deeper into understanding postmodernism, its history and teach you valuable strategies to actually combat it. For full details and to reserve your tickets today, go to truearrowevents.com. Select the event to which you would like to attend, and if you hurry, you may even be lucky enough to get your tickets at early bird prices at a 50% discount. And while you're online, please leave us a review for the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Now back to the podcast. This is a challenge for those of us who are advocates of a liberal free society, uh, free market capitalism, democratic republic, right? That is going to have a lot of inequalities and a lot of competitiveness in it. How do we respond to arguments like this? Well, one kind of argument in response is to say that uh, the kinds of problems that lead to envy, freedom solves a lot of those problems. So one kind of envy, uh, for example, is a response to not having stuff. Somebody else has a whole lot more stuff than you do. You feel resentful or you feel envious or something, uh, emotion in that area, and that's bad. But the point then will be that free market capitalist economies are enormously productive. They produce a lot of stuff and they they lower the prices of those things, making them more widely available to people. So if envy, for example, in the old days before capitalism used to be about some people having nice clothes and some people having no clothes or, or lousy clothes, well, now pretty much everyone has plenty of nice clothes. Or if it used to be that some people had electricity, cars, air conditioning, white teeth, cell phones, and other people didn't have those things, there was this big gap. Well, basically capitalism has made it possible for everyone to have all of those things. So what we don't now have is some people have cell phones and some people don't, right? or it's a tiny percentage of people who don't. Right? Or some people don't have electricity and other people have awesome electricity instead. What we have is some people have slightly better cell phones than other people have. And so the range of inequalities has lessened significantly. So the point here just is that by being so economically productive, free market capitalism raises the have-nots to also being haves. And it thus eliminates one source of envy. Now, another uh, strategy here is that contrary to the claim that in earlier times when things were more tribal, more egalitarian, that there was less envy compared to modern societies that are more competitive and, uh, and unequal, that it does seem on anthropological grounds, there's a lot of good anthropological that suggests the opposite of that is true that when we look at the pre-modern and tribal societies, we see a lot more envy in them than we do in modern liberal capitalist societies. Here, Helmut Schuch wrote a book called Envy, a classic study now, where he cites and summarizes the research of a lot of anthropologists who had studied primitive and developing cultures all over the world. And what he noticed was a striking phenomenon, a lot of all of these anthropologists reporting that the envy barrier and the widespreadness of, of, of envy was initially to them shocking, but then as the data came in, uh, not so shocking that it became uh, understood as a, a built-in feature of a lot of these tribal and developing countries. The widespreadness of this was uh, was part of the, you know, they had studied places in South America, Haiti, parts of Africa, some of the Pacific Islands, East Asia, and places where 
tribal scale societies were to be found. These were all largely subsistence level economies, but they were riven with huge amounts of envy. And it seemed that those two phenomena were connected. The subsistence level living made everyone intensely aware of slight differences in the tribe in economic status and social status. The smallness of these societies led to constant communal monitoring right, of each other. As a result of that and the envy that these slight differences and the constant monitoring led to, the anthropologists found that there was a lot of hiding of assets people wouldn't show what material assets they actually held. They would be less likely to tell their neighbors about their own personal successes or about how well their children had done. And this was largely driven by their fear of envious reactions that they had learned at a very early age. Envy was everywhere. Envy was uh, to be uh, manifested very easily. And so socially, people were isolating themselves from each other out of a fear of these reactions. So uh, to some extent, in even in modern societies, we can have a, a hint of this. We have our own stereotype of small town mentalities with their small mindedness and, and nosy neighbors. So, you know, one neighbor paints his fence and the other neighbors are like, oh, who look who's getting all fancy now, right? Or well, you know, one of the young kids, a teenager, is uh, telling his friends uh, that he's planning to go off to the big city. He's going to go to college. He's got big dreams. And the reaction of uh, his small-minded neighbors is to say, oh, so you think that you're so much better than the rest of us, do you? And as a result of that, there's various kinds of passive-aggressive behaviors and envious sabotage that occurs. And we have this phrase, the crab bucket mentality. If you imagine a bunch of crabs, you know, they're all stuck in a bucket and they're all with their claws aimlessly trying to do whatever it is uh, that they do with their claws. But one of the crabs tries to climb out of the bucket, and then, uh, this is obviously a metaphor here, but the other crabs in the bucket grab that crab with their claws and pull the person back down so none of the crabs can actually get out of the bucket. But the point is, in the case of human, we're, humans were aware, right, that other people are functioning like the crabs. You know, they want to get their hooks in us and bring us down. So we learn in those stereotypically small town or small cliques not to let our dreams and ambitions be known by other people, knowing that they will make us pay a social cost for doing so. And it seems then that the closer we get to the small town or tribal communalism as a society, the more pronounced is its culture of not showing or not sharing one's successes, not discussing your dreams and your ambitions. And so for all of their closeness, there's much effort expended to withdraw from the gaze of other people, to isolate yourself, to hide what's really important to you. So it seems like on anthropological grounds, in contrast to Rousseau's uh, valorization of these primitive and tribal societies, actual tribalism seems to be more dominated by envy and its antisocial manifestations. And so by contrast, and this is an interesting thing, you know, we talk about conspicuous consumption uh, as a weakness of, of, of free market capitalism, but the very willingness of so many people in successful liberal capitalist countries to share their successes openly, that is then, by this count, a sign of cultural health. As part of the ethos of liberal capitalism is respecting other people's uh, accomplishments, admiring people for their achievements. And if we then have a culture as most 
free market capitalist culture seem to be of celebrating success, encouraging people to have big dreams. It's more likely then that those are going to be celebrated rather than envied. They're more likely to be shared openly rather than hidden away. But it is also true that free market capitalism's successes also does create the potential for new kinds of problems. Here, this is you know, partly philosophical, partly political, partly economic, partly sociological, and somewhat speculative as well. But one thing that does seem to be uh, the case is that as societies are freer, they do become wealthier, and that combination of freedom and wealth does lead to the development of new kinds of social dynamics. So one thing that happens is as people are freer and wealthier, they become more ambitious. We expect more out of life. We start to believe that life should be great. It should be awesome. It should be perfect. The expectation is, you know, our kids will have a better life than we will, our grandchildren, right, even more so. So this cultural ethos and expectation of awesomeness of life, we become much more ambitious. But then that also means, though, that with these higher ambitions, we're going to have more failure. Not everybody is going to succeed at their very high ambitions, and they're going to realize right, that they are failure. So by raising the bar, we will set more people up who will fail. That's not that we're setting them up for failure, but there, there's a numbers game. There's going to be a lot more people who will dream big dreams and won't succeed at their dreams, and that's going to then be more fertile soil for more envy in a society. It's also the case that as people are freer, they start doing different things. As people in successful economies have more wealth, life becomes more, more complex. There's more areas of possibility. What counts as a successful life is going to involve putting together accomplishments in a wider range of, of fields. It's not just you stand behind the plow 40 hours a week, you raise your kids, you enjoy a pint of beer and go to church on Sunday, that's a successful life. Instead, we expect ourselves to be Renaissance men and Renaissance women and to be able to do all of these awesome things. We're going to be successful in our education, in our career, in traveling the world, and having beautiful straight teeth, and becoming an accomplished guitar player, and wearing stylish clothes, and having magnificent houses, and so on and so forth. And so a free society is going to be generating so many opportunities that it's going to create a lot more dimensions of success and failure in life. So the claim here is going to be that puts a lot more pressure on people. People are going to then be comparing themselves along more social dimensions. And since it's really difficult for any of us to be awesome in all of these areas of life, you know, we're striving, to, I'm striving to be a Renaissance man. Well, I'm going to be better at some things than not at other things, but there are going to be more aspects in my life that I am going to feel inadequate when I compare myself to other people who are more accomplished in those areas. So maybe a free society then is going to be, again, a more fertile soil for envy. In Stephen Hicks's book, Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault, he writes an incredibly crafted and well-argued insight into what postmodernism is, why it exists, and why it is dangerous applied in the wrong dose, in the wrong place, as it frequently is in this day and age. Postmodernism has been the most vigorous intellectual movement of the late 20th century. In his book, Hicks traces the roots of postmodernism all the way back to the Enlightenment era, where he systematically charts how the age of reason sowed the seeds of unreason that was to follow, 
making a clear connection between postmodernism to history, leftist politics, and even the ugliness of contemporary art. Hicks presents his thesis with beautiful, easy-to-understand explanations that burn with logic and common sense. So if you've ever wondered why society holds so many assumptions about the world, and you want to understand the chaos of what is happening, Hicks's work in this book provides a huge piece to this puzzle. Why do sceptical and relativistic arguments have such power in the contemporary intellectual world? Why do they have that power in the humanities but not in the sciences? Why is a significant portion of the political left the same left that traditionally promoted reason, science, equality for all and optimism now switch to the themes of anti-reason, anti-science, double standards and cynicism? This book is by far the most helpful resource I have ever come across for understanding why the world is turning into a direction that I just can't comprehend. Pick up your copy of Stephen Hicks's book, Explaining Postmodernism, Skepticism and Socialism from Rousseau to Foucault, available now on Amazon.com. While you're online, make sure to subscribe to the Open College podcast, hosted by Stephen Hicks himself, and please leave a review for it on iTunes or Stitcher. Now back to the podcast. There's also the phenomenon in free and wealthy societies of first movers and followers. Those who take advantage of some opportunity in a free society are more likely to succeed spectacularly. So maybe Jeff Bezos is an example here. He had the idea for Amazon in the 1990s, and he built it up wonderfully, and you know he surged far ahead of the competition. So he's the first mover in internet retail. But those of us who come along later, we're going to be aware of the gap, right? So he's built up this huge company, but then I might have the exact same idea of going into internet retail, but uh, what's the likelihood that I'm going to be able to succeed on the scale of Amazon, even though I have the knowledge of what's possible that Jeff Bezos has prior to us? How realistic is that uh, even if I started an Amazon competitor right now that I'm going to be succeed? I'm so far behind what Amazon has already accomplished. And it's not just going to be an internet retail, it's going to be in all of the other economic zones. This is the way the argument goes. The first movers have this advantage. They can build up and make an unbridgeable gap for those who come along later. And those of us who come along later then are going to be more likely to feel envious. You know, I, I, was, I was just unlucky to have come along so late. And it's kind of unfair in some sense that I can't also build my own Amazon company. So again, more possible fertile soil for, for envy. Also, a psychological point about raising children, uh, free market societies we might grant, uh, they, they create a lot of wealth, and that makes it easier for people to live the easy life. But one of the downsides of that is that we will then have a lot more spoiled kids and a lot more semi-spoiled kids, people who can be raised in relative comfort. We're going to teach these kids, uh, you know, that life is easy. They can have great ambitions. They should expect, uh, almost as a matter of course, for their life to be great and wonderful. But at the same time, we're not raising these kids with the same character and the same skill set that it makes it possible for people in the first place to create all of that wealth. 
So they are the stereotypical spoiled and semi-spoiled kids, and we're going to have a society in which there's a lot of them. So there's going to be a lot of people who are raised with the expectation that their life is going to be excellent and awesome, but they're not raised with what it takes in, to achieve that excellence and awesomeness. So we set them up for failure or at least for some level of underperformance in their lives. And that expectations gap right, can also then generate more envy when those semi-accomplished kids, we put them out into the world, and then 10, 20 years later, they haven't accomplished very much in their life. And so the gap is setting themselves up for envy when they see other people who've gone out and accomplished various things. And the point just is that it's the very success here of free market capitalism that it's making it possible for more semi-spoiled kids to be raised to become only semi-competent adults. And then at the same point, there, uh, another line of argument here can be that there are better communications technologies uh, that have been created under free market capitalism, all of the social media, television, radio, cell phones, and so forth. So all of us now are more hyper aware of the best of everything and the best that everyone else is accomplishment. And we all want the best of everything in our own lives, but these communication technologies make us constantly aware that there's all this awesomeness out there and I'm not participating in it. I can see on social media that my old college friend is out there climbing Mount Everest. Well, I kind of wanted to climb Mount Everest too, but I'm not doing it and I feel inadequate by comparison. And a hundred other reminders like that every day uh, the telecommunications powerhouse, that's another accomplishment of liberal capitalism, but it's making me more aware of the range of possibilities and all of the ways in which my life is not succeeding or not succeeding to the degree that I thought I could. So we have lots of ways then the argument runs or the arguments run that liberal capitalism, despite its great successes, can generate more fertile soil for for envy. And that can support one kind of an argument for an egalitarian type socialism, right? That uh, there's going to be so many inequalities under free market capitalism, it's going to create much more widespread envy. And that envy is going to lead to lots and lots of social conflict. Now, that's an argument that Rousseau made very strongly. It's an argument that John Rawls made more moderately. And both of them are assuming that envy is an uneliminable or sometimes perhaps a justifiable emotion and one that we have to accommodate. And if we're going to accommodate it, then we need to lessen or undercut the degree of freedom that free market capitalism has. So those of us who are wanting to defend a free and open society that is going to have some measures of inequality is going to have to reject those moral psychological assumptions such as the ones we find in, in Rousseau and, and Rawls. Envy is not a necessary psychological response to inequality. Envy is not a justifiable emotion that needs to be tolerated. And it's not one that certainly in our crafting our principles of justice or more broadly our principles of the proper function of government that needs to be accommodated. But it does point up a challenge for moral education in a free society. It is true that a free society is more complex 
and it does lead open to the possibility of more dimensions of expectation, more dimensions of possible envy. And so uh, part of what makes a free society more complicated is the moral demands that it raises on it. It does call for us to be a better kind of person, to be able to handle the greater complexity of a free society. And I do think that the phenomenon of envy shows that a free society has actually more need for character education than other kinds of society. It has to be able to to handle envy. Becoming the kind of person who can live well in a free society includes learning how to set goals for yourself that are both idealistic and realistic. It does include learning how to assess how one is doing at achieving one's life goals. And it does include learning how to make comparisons of yourself to other people in healthy ways. All of those are psychologically and morally complicated things, but there's no getting around them, I think, if we're going to have a free and open society. Friedrich Nietzsche was famous for his statement that God is dead and his provocative account of master and slave moralities and also for the fact that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis claimed that Nietzsche was one of their great inspirations. Were the Nazis right to do so, or did they misappropriate Nietzsche's philosophy? Professor Stephen Hicks's concisely written book, Nietzsche and the Nazis, based on the 2006 documentary, corrects many widespread misconceptions about Nietzsche, giving a fascinating and easy-to-understand analysis of Nietzsche's work, asking and answering a number of questions such as what were the key elements of Hitler and the National Socialist political philosophy? How did the Nazis come to power in a nation as educated and civilized as Germany? What was Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy? The philosophy of live dangerously and that which does not kill us makes us stronger? And to what extent did Nietzsche's philosophy provide a foundation for the horrors perpetrated by the Nazis? Professor Hicks demonstrates his mastery of this subject using quotes and critical analysis that prove his points and show the true linkage between Nietzsche and the Nazis and how philosophical ideas move the world. Get your copy of Nietzsche and the Nazis by Stephen Hicks on Amazon.com today. And while you're online, please leave a review for the Open College podcast hosted by Hicks himself on iTunes or Stitcher. Now back to the podcast. So I do have a few thoughts here on uh, this phenomenon of how we can compare ourselves to other, uh, and that'll wrap up this episode. I do think, you know, observing other people and learning about other people, that is a, a natural part of life. We are social beings. And comparing ourselves to other people is a natural phenomenon. And it's a useful phenomenon because comparing yourself to others can be a great source of knowledge and inspiration. When I look at other people, particularly when I'm young and I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my life and what's possible for me, I don't yet know right, what is humanly possible. But other people can show me this. Right? Others can show us what human beings are capable of accomplishing so they can expand our sense of what can be done. I'm a kid or I'm a person with some undeveloped capacities. What uh, what can humans actually do with these capacities? And so when I see lots of other people out there doing all sorts of things, that's a great source of knowledge. Now, of course, I need to craft that for myself individually. Uh, I'm a human being, but I'm also a unique human being. So what in fact is possible for me? And here, what I can then do, again, learning from others who are setting examples is, well, I will try to do what those other people have done, and I will measure my results against theirs. That gives me some feedback about realistically assessing my own capacities. 
The same thing holds for other people's problems and their failings. Those are human failings and learning from other people's failings. Well, I'm a human being. Those in principle are failings that I need to be aware of as possible. And I can also learn from the kinds of things that I see other people doing and not succeeding at that I, as a human being, I might fail at those things too. That's important knowledge, but it's important knowledge that can only come from comparing myself to other people as well. But it's also uh, morally and motivationally that comparing myself to others leads to inspiration and, of course, on the flip side, warnings. Other people's successes and seeing people doing things awesomely, that can be enormously energizing for me. I can watch the Olympic athletes and I can see what they can do and that can inspire me to become a better physically fit me. Or I can read a wonderfully written article and that can inspire me to become a better writer. And of course it goes the other way. Conversely, I can read a terribly written article and that can motivate me not to do the kinds of things that made that article so terrible. And I can see some make bad life choices and be suffering, that can motivate me to be more careful not to make similar bad choices. So all of these social comparisons can serve very important cognitive and motivational functions. So the point is not that we don't want to compare ourselves to others. We do. That's, uh, That's important. That's very useful. But it's critical to also realize that when we are making these comparisons, that how other people are doing in their lives, this is not the primary marker of how you are doing in your life or how I am doing in my life. And that's the mistake that people who are consistently envious make. Because outside of formal competitive situations, other people's success is not a measure of your failure, and other people's failures is not an indicator of your success. Here, there's an individuality point that needs to be insisted upon. We are social, but we are individual social beings. And the problem of envy is comparing yourself socially and letting other people's successes or failures be the standard right, by which you judge your own success or failure in, in life. So there's a lot of subtle nuances that need to be explored here, but there's just one anecdote about this particular point that I'm making here. I recall when I was a kid, I think I was about six years old, going to Toronto with my, my family. We were, uh, we're all in the car. My dad was driving down the highway. And I can remember being really impressed with how fast we were driving down the highway. And I wanted my dad to drive drive really fast. And I remember sometimes my dad would accelerate and we'd pass another car and I would feel this yes feeling, right? We're going faster than those guys. And I'd feel a kind of pride. You know, my dad is a great driver and by extension, you know, we're, we're a great family because we were able to pass those guys. But then sometimes we'd also get passed by other cars that were going faster than ours and I would feel this kind of disappointment. Oh, drat, you know. And somehow, uh, you know, I'd feel like the dad who was driving that other car was now better than my dad. But then I remember partway along this drive to Toronto, I realized, you know, this is not actually a race, right? There's no actual competition between the cars who are on this highway right now. That's all just in my head. You know, how fast we get to Toronto compared to how fast other people get to Toronto, nobody actually cares, right? Nobody's keeping track, right, of this. And in fact, I also realized this when I saw cars entering the highway and leaving the highway at various points. Not everybody is going to Toronto. It's not a race. And even those of us who are going to Toronto, it's not a competition. Everybody on the highway is going to their own destinations. They're going for their own reasons. They're going at their own 
pace, right? So my six-year-old competition, right, and, and feeling better or worse about my dad or better or worse about my family, depending on how fast we were going, that was not the right way to make those speed comparisons. And that realization really holds generally, right? Life is not a race, right? We're all on our own paths. We're going at our own speeds and we're going for whatever destinations we've set in our lives for our own reasons. The host of the Open College podcast, Dr. Stephen Hicks, is a renowned philosopher and author. His field of study and insights into postmodernism explain how it has become one of the most powerful intellectual movements of our time and what that actually means. If you'd like to access more information from Dr. Hicks himself, then check out his website at www.stephenhicks.org. You'll be able to find details on his latest publications, courses, and philosophical information concerning business ethics, education, intellectual history, and religion. To stay up to date with the latest from Stephen Hicks himself, make sure you've subscribed to the Open College Podcast feed and follow at Open College Podcast on all your favorite social networks. And while you're online, please leave the show a review on iTunes and Stitcher.